0: Contrary to popular belief, you actually don't need to go to college to get a job as a software engineer at Netflix. In fact, you actually don't need to go to college to get a job at any tech company because what's most important is what you know how to do, what's in your portfolio, and how you tell your story. Um, If you want to learn more about how to become a software engineer at a company like Netflix, Uh, Definitely listen to this episode, but more importantly, go to the breakingintthestars.com slash webinar so we can explain in deeper effect how to take action and become a software engineer yourself. This episode is very special to us, not just because student loans are at an all-time high and people are seeking alternatives, but also because Rich Smith's episode is our first video episode on our Career Karma YouTube channel. So if you are a video person more than audio, make sure you go over there, subscribe and watch that and leave comments. Um, if you have not joined our Breaking Stars community on Facebook or liked our Breaking Stars Facebook page, make sure you do that right now. Um, and if you have not leave a review on iTunes yet, positive or negative, please do that. So we can learn a little bit more about how we can make this experience better for you. And without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today?
1: Yeah, so today we're actually recording out of Los Gatos in Silicon Valley. And what a lot of people equate to Silicon Valley, they usually think of San Francisco. But Silicon Valley actually came around, the term Silicon Valley came around in the 70s and 80s, because some of the biggest key players in starting this tech boom and tech revolution were building silicon chips. And those silicon chips are now in every phone and every computer that led us to sit here at the Netflix headquarters four decades later. And we have a very special guest who's going to Tell our listeners, what is it like to actually be at a company like Netflix? What happens on the inside? So I'm very excited. Ruben, can you please introduce the
0: guest? Yeah. And so like Timor said, Silicon Valley in tech is not just in the United States, it's global. We have eight heroes in the building from Brazil. We got free birds in the building. But today we're interviewing Rich Smith, who many people in the tech industry know as a senior UI engineer, which he is. But very few people know about his whole story. Um, some people might know about the fact that he was a self taught college dropout who worked full-time as an IT guy. He is a true hustler who was able to create his own freelance portfolio and was one of the first engineering hires at a lot of companies. But very few people also don't know about his story as a top athlete, as a gamer, as a family man that cares about his, his not just his, his personal family, but even as a, as a married man in tech. And so we're going to talk about all of that. But before doing that, we're going to unpack Netflix and how a lot of people might think about it as a Hollywood agency. But there's a lot of technical things to that. But before doing that, let's just say welcome.
2: Thank right you. Yep. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for
0: having me. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, as a senior engineer at Netflix, what do you do on a day-to-day basis?
2: So basically I write code is the short of it. But the reason... So one of the things about Netflix is that they try to only attract senior level people, especially on the engineering side. And it's because they give you a lot of autonomy to to direct your own work and to determine the cadence of your work and to determine how long sort of your work will take. And because you have this autonomy, you essentially have needed to bend around the block a little bit and have had this experience building apps and writing code and figuring out tough problems and breaking down complicated things into simpler things and delivering those things to our customers. And so what are some of the challenges that Netflix is facing on the technical mm -hmm. side? So on the technical side, one of the biggest things is trust for my users, right? Mm -hmm. When you open up your Netflix app and you hit play on something that you really want to watch, the last thing you want to have Mm -hmm. happen is for it not to load. Yep. or buffer, right? Buffer, right? <laughs> Which is a thing of the past. And, and we have engineering teams dedicated solely to solving those types of actual problems. So what happens if you're in a remote area with limited service and you want to watch Netflix, uh-huh. right? And so there are even ways to break down the quality of a video and serve it in smaller chunks and smaller bytes, and still have you stream it without any interruptions, much mm-hmm. like you would if you were home watching it on yeah. your TV. And nowadays, when
1: people are accessing Netflix from their mobile phones, their laptops, like countries outside of US where your connection is probably not as strong as uh, the high-speed internet we have here in Silicon Valley, the connection speed is super important for that user experience. Speaking of like user experience and what you're doing, a lot of people come to us and they want to know, some of them say they want to become a web developer. Some of them say they want to become a software engineer. There is the UI engineer, like, titles. Can you kind of break down what are the differences and what does an UI engineer do that might be different than writing code as a full stack or a backend engineer?
2: Great question. So as a UI engineer, I work very closely with designers and product managers to understand exactly what needs to be built and to be able to visualize it and all of the potential states that an app can find itself in. Mm -hmm. And then what my job is, is to take a design and translate that into a fully operational app that you can interact with. The UI side of things specifically focuses on building things that people are intended to use. Mm -hmm. So things you can see and scroll through and click on and type into, right? That's all on the UI side. Everything that you don't see Mm -hmm. that helps the app serve all of the data, like your user account, things like that, that happens on the back end, right? And so because I have a background in design, I gravitated towards the UI side Mm -hmm. of things. And that was where I decided to focus most of my time as an engineer.
0: And so for people that don't know, like UI is user interface. Mm -hmm. And you said something about the back end. Can you explain what that is?
2: Yeah. So the the back end of an app is essentially the server that provides the the app that you are seeing and interacting with. And there are different visual assets and potentially audio assets and JavaScript files and CSS and things like that that comprise the app that you're seeing and that's all served on the back end. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, the data that you're looking to retrieve. So when you sign into Instagram and you see the stream of people that are posting photos, all of their accounts and all of that data and all of those images are stored in their back end, in their mm-hmm. API. Got yeah. It's and, like
1: uh, kind of like a retail store. Like If you go to Gap or Banana Republic, how you have the shelves where the customers see and they it's very well organized, it's easy to find. And then you also have like the back office where they store everything. And everything is like on shelves, organized, and you could easily retrieve something in a second. It's kinda of, I think apps work in a similar way where in the database you'll have like structured like files in one folder, mm-hmm. you'll have like I don't know, movie titles in another. Mm-hmm. And then when a user comes to the website it just like magically pull all the data together and show you this beautiful movie. But in the back end it has to all be like linked together. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah.
0: You talked a little bit earlier about like limited connectivity and internet access. And from what I understand, when you grew up, you didn't really have internet access and that kind of prevented your journey. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of internet access?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I would say for much of my adolescence, I didn't grow up like broke, poor, you know, but I didn't have all of the things that my friends had when they had it. And so for a lot of time, going to school was the only way I can get online or the only way I can do certain things, because that was the only time that I had access to the internet, which around this time was still, I would say dial-up speeds almost. It was kind of just becoming ubiquitous enough for people to have it at home. And, you know, my household, we couldn't even, so I know some friends of mine, for instance, when it was dial-up, for instance, would have two different phone lines in their house and one would be dedicated to the internet and the other one would be dedicated to the phone calls at the house. But we only had one phone line. So if I wanted to get online, I had to wait till mom fell asleep, you know, so that yeah. she wasn't picking up the phone and hearing that the modem was was connected. So yeah. because I didn't have that access in my free time when I was home, it, it definitely took a lot longer for me to, I guess, realize what it was that I wanted to become and sort of the things that ultimately uh, stoked my passions. Yeah.
0: And before like even caring about internet access or anything like that, like you're this top pro athlete or like top athlete in your school when you were younger. Mm-hmm. Talk about that because you didn't really have a lot of free time to like even play on computers.
2: Yeah, so when I was younger, elementary school and even the early parts of middle school, I played sports year round. So, three seasons a year in school I was doing something. Track, wrestling, football, even a little basketball certain years. Wrestling wound up becoming my passion and it was the sport that I loved the most. And there was just something about the sort of chess of yeah. it, like jujitsu, kind of, kind of, but it, I mean actual like Gre- Greco-Roman wrestling. Got it, you know? got it. <laughs> it's actual grappling, right, and getting your opponent oh. onto the mat and trying to pin them. And so I did that when I was in seventh grade, and then I spent that entire season talking to all my friends about how amazing it was and trying to convince them to do it. And then the very next year, I was diagnosed with a heart condition, mm-hmm. which totally derailed my mm-hmm. athletic career. Uh, but up until that point, when I ran track for three years in a row. I was the fastest kid in my city. Even on the wrestling team, my coach someday during practice called me the legend, which <laughs> which wound up sticking. And it was because I was able to wrestle in weight classes above mine. Mm-hmm. And every time we had wrestle-offs to see who would start for the certain weight class, I always won them. Yeah. Handily, it wasn't like, it wasn't like- so you were just, just uh, another level of athlete compared yeah. to all your peers. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so like this, this situation derailed you with the open heart surgery. You face depression. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, um, just given the the fa- the news headlines that have been coming out and the fact that people have been dealing with this and, and how mm-hmm. important it is to know how to address and kind of like give the tactical advice that you use to, to get through it?
2: Yeah. I think before I get into that, though, I just want to provide a little context, oh, yeah. you know, because I think this part is important. And growing up as a black kid in New Jersey, all I ever wanted to do was be a pro athlete. Mm-hmm. All of my role models were black athletes, right? Mm-hmm. And because of the prowess that I had on the field and on the court and on the mm-hmm. wrestling mat, yeah. I, in all of my daydreams and all of, and every time I would stare out the window and look at the sky and wonder what I'd be in the future, it always had to do with me catching some crazy football and and scoring a touchdown mm-hmm. that won the game or, you know, winning some sort of Olympic wrestling match or something like that, or breaking track records. And so when it came to the point that I was told that I would not be able to play on an organized sports team for the rest of my life, it was something that I really didn't even know how to stomach in the moment. And I remember walking out of my cardiologist's office and just sitting in the hallway and breaking down for a few minutes just because it was something that I just couldn't plan for and couldn't account for. And I realized that in that moment, my entire life was going to be changed. And all of those dreams and and hopes and aspirations that I had were gonna go out of the window because of some condition that I was born with that I carried my entire life and just didn't know about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And at that point, there's a lot of adults who struggle with these things. But Mm -hmm. at that point, you're in seventh grade, right? So you're like 11, 12 years old. Right. Did you have anyone you can go to, to like voice these um, like mental uh, or like these
2: emotional feelings about your future? Or how did you cope with that? So actually, I did not. I didn't have anyone that I could talk to about it. I didn't really have anyone that understood. My friends were very empathetic towards me during this time because they knew that I just wasn't myself for a while and they knew how upset that I was mm-hmm. and how depressed I was and how much being in sports meant to me. But for some reason, I always had this resolve internally and that same resolve led me to not even take my first sip of alcohol until I was 24 years old. So I always thought to myself that anything I ever needed to accomplish in life, I already had it inside of me. I just needed to figure out how to tap into that. And and, and how to sort of hack my brain into being motivated enough to chase it down and accomplish it. And so, even though I knew it was a really, 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 really shitty moment for me in my life, I knew that eventually I would be okay. And I just kept focusing on trying to improve the quality of my life over time.
0: And not to go too deep on the subject, but like, can you talk a little bit about how you hack your brain, not just then, but even now, to like create that mindset to power through things?
2: Yeah. I mean, essentially for me, it's about understanding yourself, right? Knowing where your pitfalls are, knowing what your distractions are, knowing who your detractors in your life are and trying to create environments and situations that enable you to focus on your strengths, right? Mm -hmm. And setting yourself up for success. So if I have people in my life that don't believe in my goals, then I don't interact with them anymore because that is taking away mental energy from me. Or if I know that waking up every day and being on social media takes up too much of my free time, then I sign out of them. Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't mm-hmm. delete the app. Right. Because mm-hmm. every time I open the app, it's a reminder when I see that login page that I shouldn't be using it. And so yeah. I tell myself in those moments, do something productive instead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Replace this time with something else. Now is the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Now is the time. This is mm-hmm. what it looks like. Right. Yeah. So in those moments, it's identifying those traps. Yeah. Yeah. And then literally just redirecting your mind. And I think that's and something that meditation helps with a lot is yeah. being able to redirect your mind. Yeah.
1: And for a lot of people learning new skills, like learning how to code, you almost have to make time because you're probably having a job or you're in school and you're trying to learn something on top of everything else you're doing. Where did you learn how to be this disciplined? Because I think that a lot of our listeners kind of struggle through that. Was it through sports or
2: your family or were you always like this? It was partially sports, but definitely. Mostly family. Yeah. So I actually grew up really strict, mm-hmm. and you know, my house it, it was it was very regimented, especially my early childhood. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of those values sort of carried with me uh, as I got a lot mm-hmm. older. And also in my household, there were five other siblings, six mm-hmm. including myself, mm-hmm. and I was the second oldest. Mm-hmm. And as the second oldest, my parents often held me responsible for what the four younger ones were doing. Yeah. yeah. And so having that those responsibilities earlier on, I was worried about a lot more. It helped me understand psychology actually understand people understand empathy things like that so just the discipline and the responsibility that i was given in through my family i think were things that i was able to take and then focus on other areas yeah
0: yeah and i I love that you emphasize family and knowing yourself um not always tells us like awareness always comes before improvement Mm -hmm. and speaking of like not just family but also friends that i'm sure affected you growing up and that gave you that positive encouragement Those friends actually led to the spark that got you interested in tech. So can you talk about that spark? Absolutely. So
2: when I was in eighth grade, right around the time that I had the open heart surgery, one of my friends, his name is Jose. He comes in someday and he's like, oh, hey guys, I built this website and there's a forum on there. You can talk about video games and I'm also reviewing the games that I've played. And so him and I got to having really deep conversations around how he had the idea for it and how he went around building it. He just would go home in the evenings and spend all his time designing this webpage and and writing the HTML and the CSS and the PHP for it. And I became fascinated by that, not only because he was able to create a website and a place on the Internet where people can go and and interact with each other, especially not even having Internet at home myself, but also because through his website, he was able to get free video games from these companies, free accessories, (laughs) free consoles, everything that had ever come out he was just getting them in the mail for free. And so walking into his bedroom was like walking into a GameStop. <laughs> and for an eighth grader who had open heart surgery, who can't go outside and play for a while, yeah. you know, seeing all these games and everything, yeah. that's, that's yeah. a pretty the appealing thing. That's right. Yeah. And so for me, it really, really sparked that interest. And I always, from that point, I told myself, you know, that, wow, being able to build a website mm-hmm. really can unlock a lot of things for you. Yeah. And so the seed was planted. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of
1: like the superpower you saw someone else have. And use it and you're like, Whoa, wouldn't it be cool if I had
2: that superpower too? Yes. Yeah. And that's more or less how I looked at it. But right. as a kid I was also really envious of yeah. the fact <laughs> not envious of the fact that, that, uh, that he had it, but it was yeah. but it was more like I was envious of the fact that I couldn't also have it. Yeah. yeah. I guess yeah. at that point did you
1: consider kind of uh, following his footsteps and learning how to code? Or was that something like not even in the in the picture at that point?
2: I would ask him a lot of questions because I wanted to understand how one could just sit home and teach yeah. yourself how to build a website. I was just yeah. so fascinated by, yeah. you know, by just looking through the code and just yeah. understanding how he came about doing it. it mm-hmm. For me, it was just such an unfathomable thing. But uh-huh. I was literally just fascinated by that more than anything. Yeah. And it wasn't until two years after that, that I started to write code myself mm-hmm. for the first yeah. time.
0: Yeah. And then, and then I remember, you know, growing up, you know, we, I mean, at least I did, I was kind of addicted to games and I love playing games. And there was a lot of these things that people were doing in the classroom with calculators. Mm -hmm. And then you also discovered something related to like graphic calculators that actually had games in them. So that kind of led to this direction. So can you talk about that?
2: Absolutely. So, so even the graphing calculator thing was sort of a progression for me because I was always trying to figure out something to sell in school. Hustler. That's right. So fourth grade, I was selling candy, lollipops. My parents uh, would get I did that like too. Sam's club or something. Right. <laughs> and then fifth and sixth grade, I started selling my homework. Don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. But I was one of the smarter kids in my class. And a lot of the other kids just would yeah. willingly give me a yeah. dollar just for, to copy my answers. And so, so I thought, go right, for it. yeah. And it gave me money, you know, to just go buy, jewelry, That's That's right. to buy more candy exactly. to
0: resell for more. Yeah. I so
2: then it. ninth grade <laughs> rolls around and they got smart. And so they would collect a dime from 10 people, right? Okay. And then one person would approach me with a dollar and be like, yo, let me get the homework. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right? That's and then they would uh, copy it down. Disrupt And then they'd say, hey, guys, I got it. And then they would disperse it to the rest of the class. And so wow. I thought, oh, wow, they got wow. me. Okay. 10th <laughs> grade rolls around and we're given graphing calculators for our math classes. So one of my friends discovers that he has games and programs on it already. Uh So I start poking around. I realize that there's source code underneath the programs. (laughs) I ask him to let me borrow the calculator for the night. Promise him I'll bring it back the next day. But I wanted to copy over the games Mm -hmm. uh, myself. Mm -hmm. And... Bluetooth didn't exist. You know, uh-huh. there were no wireless technologies to transfer them. So I literally had to go line by line, read the code and then figure out how in the calculator to type it in on my own. Wow. And so through doing that, I started to understand what the code was doing. Are you did this all all in a night? Yes, one evening cool. at home. <laughs> yeah. I started to understand what the code was doing and uh-huh. then I started to realize I started to be able to reuse some of the little principles to construct my own programs, uh-huh. uh, and I was hooked. Yeah. And so what I did with that was, in every single class that we had, all the formulas that they taught us, yeah. I wrote a program for. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so one of my, my chemistry teacher noticed that, 10th uh-huh. grade chemistry teacher, he noticed. And one day after an exam, gave me this cable that you can use to link calculators together. Interesting. And he was like, I'm going to be interested in see what you do with this. <laughs> and so what I wound up doing was selling each program for $2 a pop. But wow. since now I was the only way yeah. to transfer those programs, I had a monopoly on it. Right. And I so like I was it. able yeah. to, to, to disrupt the market yet again. So you created, uh, a, you created original content you sold it. That's right. I love it. I mm-hmm.
0: love it. So you're selling this content through the school. You're the the OG, not just with the gaming, but also with the homework. But you also started developing your passion for music, and that's kind of how you discovered design. And it's also similar to like how you were looking up to athletes and things like that. But Mm -hmm. these were musicians, so can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, so actually, one of the things I guess one of you guys asked me before about the depression and sort of how I was able to cope with that, and we kind of went on a tangent. But music for me was a huge part of just helping my emotional state and my mental state and just keeping me focused and prepared. And specifically, I will say Eminem, you know, I don't always agree person to person Mm -hmm. about what he talks about, Mm -hmm. but sometimes the anger that he felt and expresses Mm -hmm. I felt Mm -hmm. and some of the emotional hurt and just betrayal that he sort of experienced and just the hardships. And so I was able to sort of take that pain that he would express in his music and I applied it to my own life. And when I would hit the gym and when I would do certain things, it was just listening to music that yeah. ultimately helped me power through. Yeah. And I wound up uh, in 10th grade joining. So I, by now I had internet at home.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so in 10th grade, I wound up joining an online forum, a music forum for Eminem fans. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and most of the the threads were about finding his music and the record label he had and, you know, mm-hmm. beef, rap beefs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then towards the bottom of the homepage was this little section about graphic design. And out of curiosity, clicked into it and started seeing all these threads about people creating wallpapers and having graphic design battles and even threads where someone would say, hey, I'm, wor- I'm trying to learn. Can you critique my designs and try to help me get better? People mm-hmm. would design mixtape covers for, mm-hmm, up for each mm-hmm. other, up and coming rappers. And so when I saw that, I think the initial draw to it was the, the fact that you can customize anything that you wanted, right? I was used to, on my PC, going through the wallpapers that Microsoft kind of already had yeah. and then picking the one I liked the most. But then realizing that I could create my own, yeah. not only for myself, but for other people, I was infatuated with the idea. So I figured out how to get a pirated version of Photoshop, <laughs> installed it, mm-hmm. and then I started to spend every waking moment just figuring out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And at the time there were one or two tutorial websites. And so I would essentially go through all of them and I would have Mm -hmm. some crazy concept in my mind for what I wanted to design. And so I would look up, you know, how to create flaming text, you know, in Photoshop, (laughs) right? And just follow the tutorial. And each time I followed a tutorial, I would learn some new technique and over time, I started to realize that if I tried to follow disparate tutorials, then yeah. it would give me a wide breadth of knowledge about how Photoshop worked. Yeah. And then I could use all of that experience and culmination yeah. to create even better things yeah. right? and really empower myself. Yeah. And so after a while of just being on the forum, sharing my own backgrounds that I was creating and album covers and stuff for people just to practice. After a while, I started to look into making my own T-shirts. Got it. And I thought, oh, I can just buy some special paper and I can just iron designs right onto Mm -hmm, mm t-shirts. So by my junior year of high school, this is what I was doing. Junior and senior year (laughs) of high school, I would say to my friends, hey, 25 bucks, custom design anything you want, and I'll put it on the t-shirt for you and I'll have it. You know, it's like, this is like before Teespring, right?
0: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think it's ironic that um, like when when high schools teach people skills, when you're at an early age and like society wants you to have like skills that will last you a, life, a lifetime, mm-hmm. they, they tend to ignore like these things like web design or how to work with Photoshop or how to code. But just from hearing your story, it looks like those are the things that influenced your life the most because they were just more fun. But there also are more like they and give you the tools to create. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff you do in schools, it's around just memorizing and taking tests. That's right. But wow. we do a lot better by by like building things and by working on projects with others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in but, your also, case, but also
0: getting it to people as well. Yeah. like after he created, he got it to people. Yeah. So I think a consumer, he got their feedback. He created a monopoly. He understood what was going on, what they wanted. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so I wanted to ask you now that you mentioned in the pre chat that you have younger siblings. Do you kind of tell them to play around with some of the
2: tools that you've used while growing up or what advice do you have for them? So I try to encourage them to poke around and discover things that they're passionate about. And then once they Find something they can sink their teeth into. I just encourage them mm-hmm. to lean into it 1000%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I try not to be too prescriptive about what it is they should be doing with their time, except for being productive with it. Yeah. Right. And so, to that end, while I would love for them all to follow in my footsteps and sort of be a software engineer in their own right, I don't think it's necessarily something that pertains to them all, but I will yeah. say they have all tried it. Yeah. <laughs> because of the respect that they have for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah, They've yeah. all tried it because they saw that what it did for me in my yeah. life. How it drastically improved the quality of life for mm. me. And I would say that all but one of them have found that it's just not
0: their thing. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. So, so far, what I've been hearing, or like what we've been hearing consistently throughout the interview, is that whenever you set your mind on something, you go all in. It's something that you don't just apply to yourself, you apply it to your family. And as you're going from your junior to senior year, naturally people tend to think about college. What are your thoughts on education? What, what did you decide when it came to your? your college career?
2: So honestly, I think education is incredibly important. In my early childhood, it was something my family really stressed. Going to college, I had a full scholarship to the college that I decided to go Flex. to. <laughs> but ultimately I squandered it and I wound up dropping out two years later. Yeah. Right. And during the application process, while I knew that I was interested in design and building websites and things like that, I applied to school as a Computer science major, Mm -hmm. but ultimately was afraid to follow through on it because I thought that there was going to be a lot of advanced math involved in pursuing those majors. Mm -hmm. And advanced math was not an area that my school system taught particularly well. Mm -hmm. And so, because of that lack of confidence, I decided to switch majors to my fallback, which was criminal justice. Mm -hmm. So, two years after taking criminal justice classes and learning a lot about the court systems and judicial process in the country, I decided to pursue my web design passion <laughs> yeah. full-time yeah. Um, and it's,
1: it's, i think it's i think it's super uh, critical because there's so many people that may have a passion for design or websites and creating but then when they encounter the traditional education system when they see the coursework wh- and then they just get terrified
0: right right or like a lot of people choose a major and they don't know that's that the, what they want to do they just do it because they know it has yeah. a job tied to the end right yeah but But in your case,
1: you actually wanted to do computer science, but you just kind of backed out once you saw what it would entail.
0: Yeah, I think I
2: definitely got nervous. And in that moment, I wish I had a mentor that I could have gone to, Mm -hmm. to really talk to about that and express my concerns about that. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had a mentor at the time, or at least what I would tell someone at that time Mm -hmm. is to stick with it anyway. And if you feel like you're struggling, there are actually ways that you can empower yourself to do better. Mm -hmm. There are resources available to you to master the Mm -hmm. areas that you don't think that you're so strong in. Right, mm-hmm. everything can be improved about your life, but if you shy away from it and you don't put any energy towards it, then it goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so that was a lesson that I hadn't learned until way later. But in the moment, I knew that criminal justice wasn't for me anymore. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't really doing my homework that much, I was building websites instead in my room. <laughs> my grades weren't really there either, yeah. and so that jeopardized my my scholarship ultimately. And then I wound up dropping out and <sighs> moving home. Got it. Which I will say sank me into another depression because yeah. I was having doubts for yeah. the next two years about about my decision. Yeah. And on Facebook, now that Facebook has around this time, Facebook was was pretty big. And So this is 2009 when I was due to graduate college, uh-huh. and I see all of my friends posting photos at their graduation right. and all of Dang. their families there supporting them and everyone congratulating them on yep. this huge milestone. Yeah. And I right. felt really really bad about myself for not being able to do the same thing mm-hmm. yeah. especially for someone who in my in the course of my life have been told how much potential i have and how smart i am and mm-hmm. i think at a certain point when it came to academia i thought that my intelligence was going to be enough to carry me through those classes mm-hmm. and i didn't put in enough hard work to sustain the mm-hmm. grades despite my lack of interest right ultimately i decided to double down on my goals i decided to double down on really mastering web design and web development mm-hmm. and it's paid off. And I would say that I'm better off without the degree in my experience.
0: Yeah. 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 And and focusing on on mastering skills. And I think, you know, during this time of depression, you did have perceived disadvantage. Sometimes some people wouldn't see it, but you had grandma, you had family. So can you talk about how grandma supported you during this time period?
2: Yeah. So when I dropped out, I didn't want to go back and live with my parents. And so instead, I decided to go live with my grandma who had an available room for me and didn't charge me rent. Didn't really ask much of me except some simple chores around the house and maybe help, you know, figuring out how to use her iPad or how to get online (laughs) or check her email every now and then, uh, which I which I completely didn't mind. But also now having left college, I couldn't justify spending all day just building websites. Right. Mm -hmm. I needed to make money. I needed to have a car and pay for my car insurance. And and I wanted to have my own life. So. I actually was kind of a hobbyist PC builder for my college years a little okay. bit. And I had a friend that that helped me learn how to do it. Really good friend of mine, and the experience that I had gained there was enough for me to get a job on campus mm-hmm. my sophomore year before dropping out, working for the help desk, the IT support mm-hmm. team on campus, Got it. and that was supporting the professors' computers. And so it was actually kind of cool in the moment because I had access to professors' offices even when they weren't in them, and I was on their computers <laughs> and stuff. And to me, as a college kid. Being able to access professors' computers, (laughs) even without them being around for whatever reason, just felt like... All those tests. just just felt like uh, so much power, you know? All the homework
0: that you could sell. (laughs) So much trust, you know?
2: (laughs) So it was great. But then once I decided to move in with grandma, I needed to find a job. And so ultimately, I was able to leverage that experience into my first corporate role at Merrill Lynch up in Manhattan in the World Financial Center. Mm -hmm. And so this was... My first day there was actually September 11th, but in 2007. Wow. Yeah, And so it was a weird day because when I'd gotten off the train in New York, the World Trade Center was still an empty pit and they had wow. just begun work on the Freedom Tower mm-hmm. and just building out all of the the infrastructure and the foundation. And even getting to work and meeting my team, they were all in a very somber mood because they had all lost someone or knew someone that they lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for me, that was Sort of kind of a a culture shock because in New Jersey, I didn't, I didn't really know that many people that were Mm. affected by it. And then here it was his first day in this new world and corporate environment on this new team and just being hit with this. And it was just, it was very much a, a jarring experience for me. Yeah. Stuck with that for two years. So what were you doing for Merrill Lynch? Yeah. So it was actually really boring work and it was the team that I was on was in the IT department, but essentially we just put software on computers. Yeah. It was like
1: installing Ward Windows. Basically.
2: But when you're a financial company like Merrill Lynch or mm -hmm. Bank of America or whomever, a lot of the traders have tons and tons of complicated and specific apps that they use Mm -hmm. for very specific things Mm -hmm. regarding money and math Mm -hmm. and and management and stuff like that. So we would essentially get a spec sheet for a computer or for a hundred of them that Mm -hmm. they needed for traders or for interns or whomever. And then we would just have to put the software on it Mm -hmm. and then just deliver it to them.
1: Yeah. At that point, did you consider potentially becoming a trader or do, kind of
2: pursuing the financial world or kind of you weren't interested in that? Uh, definitely not interested in that <laughs> at all. Uh, in fact, the work was so boring and I had mastered it so early on that I would bring my own... By this point, I was able to afford a little netbook. So uh-huh. this is before the days of the Chromebooks, but it would be like a little $200 laptop you can get that wasn't very powerful, but you can do simple web browsing on it. Yeah. I would bring it to work with me and <laughs> would be building websites <laughs> at my desk, mm-hmm. on my laptop at yeah, work.
0: That's clear. That That's your passion. I think like before we transition out of Merrill Lynch mm-hmm. though, I think it's important to touch on um, a lot of people t- think that tech companies are just startups or, or big corporate tech companies like Netflix, but there's traditional industries like banks, mm-hmm. like food companies, mm-hmm. like re- distributors that mm-hmm. have tech Components and jobs available. Home Depot, mm-hmm. where you can work, and so that's right. So yeah. nice I steps. mean, they
1: all have websites. Like yeah. Walmart, for example, has one of the highest trafficked websites in the world. Absolutely, and yeah. you would have never thought that.
0: Yeah, they're going in. Yeah, so so yeah, you do this for two years, mm-hmm. and then now you start thinking about Silicon Valley or like whatever. no. So my initial goal was to
2: create my own sort of design agency. Okay. I had the design experience. I had the uh-huh. the coding experience, which was very limited at the time, but I was growing it. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, wow, I can just keep finding clients and then yeah. eventually charge a higher rate for my projects and then just have this portfolio and then hire a team and just get this help. And then I wanted to scale that into a design agency. Yeah. So I just kept finding clients. And the ways that I would find my clients would be word of mouth through friends, or I would scour Craigslist okay. actually for businesses. And for a while, what I would do is find certain businesses whose services I was interested in check out their website and if it was lackluster reach out to them and say hey let's barter in exchange yeah. for your services I would I would love to rebuild your website for you yeah and so there was one company in particular that cleaned air ducts okay. and my grandma had central air in her house and uh-huh. I couldn't remember I couldn't think of the any time ever that they had been cleaned yeah. so I thought <laughs> oh this would be an interesting thing to have done right yeah. so reach out to the guy him and I actually had a really good working relationship and on christmas day that year Christmas morning, he came to my grandma's house. Wow. And cleaned her air ducts for her. The That's owner crazy. himself. Yeah. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. Built some, you know, websites for comedian friends that I had at the time, things like that. And just really was trying to to establish myself as Sort of a competitor in the design market.
1: What uh, at that point, like, what technologies did you do? You learn, do you learn like HTML,
2: CSS, JavaScript? Like, what else did you Mm -hmm. need to know? So it was HTML and CSS. I had perfected. I would say that was what I spent most of my time writing. Didn't feel super comfortable with PHP, although I knew enough to build custom WordPress templates over time. And then in terms of JavaScript, I had been on the jQuery boat at that Mm -hmm. time, and so I knew how to work with simple jQuery things, but I didn't quite understand JavaScript to the extent that I do now, and so Mm -hmm. I think getting to that point took me a lot longer to get to. And so I just kept kind of dabbling in HTML and CSS and basic PHP, basic jQuery, but really um, was trying to learn it and trying to master it. But it wound up taking me a much longer time Mm -hmm. than I think it takes people nowadays.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And so um, when it comes to design, how did the design agency go? Like, so (laughs) that's a really good question.
2: Ultimately, I wound up leveraging that portfolio to getting my first job here in Silicon Valley. But it wound up just being a lot of administrative work that I didn't necessarily care for, right? Mm -hmm. Time tracking, invoicing, tracking down new clients, keeping track of different projects, working on multiple projects simultaneously. It was, I would maybe say 40% doing what I loved and Mm -hmm. 60% doing things that I had no interest in whatsoever. And it never really crossed my mind to, I don't know, hire an assistant or have one of my siblings help me out or anything. I just thought I needed to kind of do it all myself. Yeah. And so I got to a point where I started trying to figure out ways not to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, I had an opportunity to, to move to Silicon Valley and I decided to take my portfolio and leverage that to, to find my first position. And so what I did, even though I'd never been to San Francisco before, was I spent a few weeks online researching companies, mm-hmm. researching positions, junior level web engineering positions that I thought I could qualify for. I ditched my IT resume. I ditched all of that experience and I started from scratch and wrote a web engineer resume. And I said, I'm going to sell myself as if I am someone who is really passionate about this because I clearly am. And I have experience, though it's not professional experience per se, I know a thing or two about how to do this. And the one thing that I prided myself in at the time, the one thing that I knew that I was incredibly good at, bar none, was taking a design, taking some UI, and in no time, turning that into mm-hmm. like responsive HTML and CSS, mm-hmm. pixel perfect mm-hmm. HTML and CSS, because I, and that was what I spent a lot of my time doing. So I was, I was proud of that. And it was the one thing I hung my hat on in all of my interviews at the time.
0: And that goes back to awareness of self. So you're transitioning to Silicon Valley. You're interested in becoming a part of the tech workforce. But can you tell us a little bit more about like how you actually sold yourself as an engineer and like the, how many jobs you actually even worked before that?
2: Yeah. So Netflix now is my 17th job. What I've been working nonstop since I was 15 years old, um, at which time I even lied about how old I was just to get that first job, which was McDonald's. (laughs) Uh, Damn. And so, you know, over the years you, you wind up gaining a lot of soft skills in terms of how to interview, how to sell yourself, what hiring managers are looking for, how to get your foot in the door, how to put your best foot forward and things like that. And because I had an IT career for so long, I already had a resume and something that I would do too is I had this document that I compiled of, of actual connection or sorry, not connections, but references I that I could I use know. on the job. Mm-hmm. So anytime I left a position, before I left, I mm-hmm. would reach out to some of the people that I was closest with mm-hmm. and just ask them for their information. And So I compiled this long document of just people from different roles, what their relationship was to me, what their email address is, their phone number, their name, and then if they had a website or anything like that. You would be an amazing salesperson. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And so, so because I knew so many places were going to be asking for references, I just wanted to have that information ready. And especially when you're four or five years removed from a position, you start mm-hmm. to forget people's names. You start to kind yep. of forget what department you were in. And so writing those things down while they're fresh and even just empowering myself in the future, making sure I had that information available to me yep. helped make it a lot easier. And so essentially, I created this resume that was focused on being a software developer. I also built my own simple website to showcase my portfolio. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, simple UI effects like Lightbox was really popular. You click on an image and it kind of shows the image with a little backdrop, a dark Mm backdrop, things like that. So I tried to play those things up. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you scroll down, the header would sort of lock into place. And for 2013, 2012, you know, for me, those were really cool little features that I could use. And then it was also very responsive. So if you mm-hmm. took your browser and shrunk it down to mobile size or loaded my website up on your phone, it would also work perfectly. Yeah. And those were key details that I tried to pay attention to when I was creating it, because I wanted my work to speak for itself. And I wanted them to look at my website and say, oh wow, yeah, this guy can totally come here and do this for mm-hmm. us. So every touch point that I knew that I would have with the company, I wanted to make sure it was polished and perfect because I didn't want to risk losing any opportunity for something arbitrary.
0: Yeah. So why, why is quality important? I think quality is important to talk about just because we live in an age of MVPs and launching and things, being embarrassed of the first version of product, which I think is very important to move quickly. Yep. But as someone that's moving quickly, trying to get these different, different things, like how did you maintain a standard of excellence throughout that process?
2: So I take a lot of pride in my work. I've been told by previous managers that it's my best quality and my worst quality (laughs) but i just knew that it needed to be as good as i can get it because i needed to just project the best representation of myself that i could and for me it just comes down to that but also i was taught just proofread your work you know measure twice cut once and over the years hearing these different phrases and having that discipline sort of instilled in me it made it hard for me to just do something for the sake of doing it and then just getting it out the door just to say that it was finished. For me, it wasn't enough for it to be done. I had it to be done the best way that I was able to do it at the time. Mm. And I think in terms of managing that against timelines, sometimes you have to cut scope, right? And so there may be a ton of different features that I wanted my website to have, but I also knew that I wanted to get to San Francisco and start applying by within a certain time frame. So I needed to set, a sustainable goal for myself but also still use that to showcase some of the cool things that I was able mm-hmm. to do and before I let any potential employer see my website I sent it to all my friends and I said what are your thoughts on this what do you think of the design what do you think of the colors what do you think of the project selection what do you think of how I explain them and I got a lot of feedback from people and you know you filter out what you think is relevant right they don't know the full vision so so their yeah. opinions are coming from their own perspective but you want as much information as you can because you want all the different perspectives. And ultimately, I took all of that and distilled it into a PDF resume that I could share out, which also was available in downloadable form on the Mm -hmm. website. And then the actual website itself that people can go to and see. Yeah. And I
1: think it's uh, important to also kind of tell people that a lot of uh, like a lot of listeners and like even myself, when I was out of college, I thought that my interview process began when I was sitting across from someone but your interviewer looks at the work you're doing way before you even step into the room and a lot of the time even with the resume when you're creating it you're just summarizing your your professional experience like bullet point by bullet point without asking yourself like is your interviewer going to find this experience relevant for the job that they're asking you to do so i think it was super smart that you redesigned your whole resume with the experience that they would find relevant mm-hmm and then uh, catered your website to actually demonstrate your work. Mm-hmm. When it came to the interview process, how important was kind of your credentials as an engineer versus the work that you
2: were able to do? And what kind of things that came up during that interview process? So I will say that for any company where having a degree might have mattered, I probably didn't hear from them. Because mm-hmm. since it was very visible in my resume, it probably filtered them out early, which is great. But with all of the companies that I did wind up meeting with, My educational experience probably mattered the
0: least. them. why why is it great? Somebody ignores you because you don't have a credential on your resume.
2: Because it saves me time and energy, right? It saves me the time and the stress of having to worry about doing my best to get that job, Mm -hmm. wherein I knew that they were going to, I guess, judge me based on some arbitrary thing. I could have learned anything in college, right? And if I actually had a criminal justice degree, how relevant would that have been to me being a software engineer? Yeah. So for me, not hearing from companies that would have filtered me out anyway due to my lack of experience or lack of education, I think did me a favor, right? So yeah. that's kind of how I feel. Yeah, about and that.
1: there's so many companies out there. You just need one company who doesn't care about your experience on paper to give you a shot. Right? That's right. And like.
0: And you also recognize what you needed to do to position yourself to apply in a traditional mm-hmm. way through things like, well, as a monster, indeed, career builder. Career yeah, builder. back in those days, these were the sites that existed to help you find jobs, and they responded. And That's right. Like, and despite not going to school, despite all, so you, so I mean, not going to college, mm-hmm. like you, you knew how to position yourself very well, right? During the interview process or mm-hmm. before the interview process, mm-hmm. did you do any mock interviews, any practice? No, no, no. Okay, nope. okay.
2: Also didn't expect, I didn't know what to expect in, in a software engineering or a web developer interview at all. So I didn't know how to prep. I had a lot of jobs up until that point. I had been in a lot of interviews already. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt comfortable with my experience and just decided to trust myself because, I mean, to be honest with you, there aren't very many in-person interviews that I go to that I wasn't made an offer for. And so well, I kind, kind of <laughs> told myself that I had a pretty good track record, yeah. and it was probably for a good reason. So I just trusted that yeah. that I knew the right thing to Trusting say and I knew the right thing to do. It's mm-hmm. right yeah. well, once you I had a process room.
0: and mm-hmm. you trusted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's very important to emphasize that your process may be different than somebody else's process, but have a process. That's right. Go through it. Sometimes, like on an MVP style, you just do it without practicing, mm-hmm. but do it with excellence, mm-hmm. and then get yeah, that, that feedback that's and right. iterate and on and it, learn so from it, better, yes. and then improve yeah. on your process. Yes.
1: And so you get, you get your first job as a software engineer, mm-hmm. like as a web developer. Mm-hmm. So how did that, that experience compare to your like years of work leading up to it, like running your own design agency and doing a lot of HTML, CSS, web work for your friends?
2: So it's interesting because when you're doing it on a freelance basis, mm-hmm. a lot of the work is very self-directed. Mm-hmm. And so you're often having to maintain this relationship with your client. You're often having to keep track of a lot of the administrative stuff that I mentioned before. And there's a lot more of the work you're doing essentially multiple job roles Mm -hmm. to support a freelance business, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when you go and you work at a company and you're writing code professionally, Mm -hmm. oftentimes based on the size of the team, you're going to have people in the roles around you doing a lot of the things that you would have had to do yourself on a freelance basis, such as a dedicated designer or such as a dedicated product manager or project manager someone who is going to understand what the spec is and what needs to be built and mm-hmm. how long things should take to build and things like that you're going to have someone in sales who's out getting or i guess specifically regarding working for a design agency yeah you would have someone in sales that's going out and getting new clients mm-hmm. and making sure that there is a funnel and that there there is work for you to be doing and so you get to focus more on actually just writing code. And then specifically as it pertains to the UI, understanding the design, understanding all the states that the app can find itself in, and then translating
0: that into code. Got it. Mm -hmm. And so um, you worked at a bunch of startups. You worked at Recurly, you worked at Omni, Mm -hmm. um, you worked at Netflix now, Mm -hmm. and some other companies. So Mm -hmm. how would you compare your experiences between like small, mid-sized startups versus being at a corporate, large, company like Netflix, that's global. How many countries? 130 130, countries. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There's a lot of differences to be honest with you. And I think, you know, for me, what I'm looking for now, isn't the same as what I was looking for when I was working at startups. And I think that's ultimately why people wind up switching from companies of different sizes in the startup world. You're often trying to find product market fit. You're often trying to develop loyal customers. You're often trying to figure out how to increase your revenue and you're trying to figure out a sort of road to profitability, right? So there's a lot of ideation, there's a lot of creativity, there's a lot of really hard work. Sometimes you're doing the job of multiple people because you don't have the resources to hire a big team. Sometimes you're, you're really having to just get your hands dirty and, and do whatever it takes to try to make this dream become a reality. And as a software engineer, what I find most of the time, I guess in my experience at startups is that you you work a lot. Mm -hmm. a lot more than 40 hours because you have a finite amount of cash in the bank and you don't really know what the future holds. And so you kind of feel like you know any second can be the last second that this company is around. And so you want to make the most of that time. Whereas being at a bigger company, the product market fit is found, right? Netflix has some brand recognition. There are enough people here to share in the work. And so they also have a culture that allows me to manage my time in the way that I best see fit. And so I have a lot more work-life balance now which is very important to me because I feel like I was burned out from working at startups. Uh, So that's one big thing. Uh, We have the resources to experiment on things and actually try new ideas and try Mm -hmm. things out just to see if it will work. Whereas at a startup, you want to make really, really well-calculated decisions because the money you spend, you often don't know if you're going to make it back or not. Yeah. So for me, those are just the major differences. And then there's the benefits and the perks and the pay and things like that. Yeah. Do you think you would have been able to
1: get a job at Netflix if you like kind of skipped the startups route or is it kind of like you work up your progression to the big names like Netflix that everyone wants to work for or like what would you say is like the best way to navigate to like a career at Google
2: or Facebook or Netflix in that league I think the most important thing to focus on is gaining as much experience as possible and mm-hmm. whether it's freelancing building projects in your free time on your own, working at a startup, working at a bank as a software engineer, wherever you're able to find Mm -hmm. that experience, all of it will help. And even if I didn't spend the last couple of years at startups, I think I would have done something that would have made me a better engineer anyway. And Mm -hmm. whatever that wound up being still would have been good enough to get me here. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just because I know my work ethic and I know how tenacious I can be when I set my mind to something and so one way or the other i would have had the experience it's just that the route that i decided to take was through startups yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: and before kind of like going into you know what we can expect from you in the future can you talk a little bit about the work that you do with organizations like DevColor color and things like that
2: yeah so i i have been in different positions of mentorship over the years the first time was when i was in college along with working uh, on the help desk that we had on campus, I was also a mentor for a program that we had called College Bound, which was helping to prepare high school students Mm -hmm. for college. And in their curriculum, there were five different classes. And one of the classes was computer science, but really it was just basic HTML. And so I had an opportunity then to show kids what it was like Mm -hmm. to Put images on a page and style a page and use css and do certain things and for a lot of them it was the first time that they had ever seen or written a line of code and seeing the, the the magic in their eyes when they start to understand it and and how far they take that was addicting for me so then by the time i got out here i started talking to friends saying hey i got this job now things are going well but i have this itch i want to mentor i want to do something and so he said hey there's this program called Code Now they're teaching Ruby to underserved, underrepresented high school students in the Bay Area. I know the founder. He's a great dude. You should talk to him. And I think you'll be great. It's it's the it's the marriage of two things that you really love, mentoring and writing code. And I said, but I don't know, Ruby, I don't know if, if this is going to be something I can actually help out with. And he said, you're a smart guy. It's simple enough. You know, you'll figure it out. It'll be fine. And to be honest with you, I was really, really worried that I wasn't going to be able to learn the subject material and time enough to teach them. And so what happened was I spoke to the founder, Ryan, he invited me out for one of their sessions on the weekend. And as the instructor was teaching them the lesson, I was watching and learning <laughs> it in the back of the classroom. And then as hands would go up and students needed assistance in the moment, I was like, okay, I kind of know what they're trying to teach. And I would essentially learn it on the spot and then help these students with their projects. And yeah. they never really knew that I was, that I had no idea. You were also learning. <laughs> yeah. So I did the code nothing for a few more years uh, after that. And then one day just received a random email in my inbox saying that I was invited to join some organization called uh, Dev Color, which was uh, marketed as a nonprofit organization to help black software engineers reach their career goals. And this appealed to me because it was, something that existed that I had wished I had when I was going along this journey. And that's much of the reason that I would find myself in these mentorship roles is that I felt like I had learned a lot and gone through a lot along the way. And I wanted ways to try to give back and try to help tell those stories and try to help people who were in the same positions that I found myself in, try to make it a little easier for them. And so with color, I the way it's structured is that we're broken up into what we call squads. And each squad is comprised of all software engineers, but at different levels in their career. And we're meeting once a month. And the idea is that in each of these meetings, we get to know each other, we share things very candidly with one another, and we're trying to hold each other accountable for whatever career goals that we have. And so sometimes it's just you know, maybe wanting to be promoted to a senior engineer. Sometimes it's wanting to be promoted to a manager. Sometimes it's wanting to be a technical lead or a VP of something or a founder of their own startup or what what have you. And uh, what I found in that organization is a group of people that I really respect and really admire who know what it's like to to go through what we go through on the job in, in a lot of cases, but also who hold me accountable and don't accept excuses for when I Essentially, don't if I'm not like a man of my word, right? In the sense yeah. that I set a goal and I, I'm not hitting yeah, it or totally. I'm not doing anything to work towards yeah. them. So,
1: and we talk a lot about the importance of peer mentorship, and sometimes you could have a structure program like this, or just have like a mastermind or group of friends who you could run ideas by. Mm-hmm. But can you just talk a little bit about kind of why peer mentorship is important and sometimes it's undervalued by people?
2: I think peer mentorship is extremely important because uh, you often spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on things that can be easily demonstrated to you or easily revealed for you if you just had someone who had been there who can just explain it to you right and so for me for instance learning javascript and learning how functions worked and about closures and all of these other things you know as a beginner those are very advanced concepts Mm -hmm. and i hadn't seen a lot of examples of how it worked initially And so if I had just someone who I could ask in confidence, not mm-hmm. feeling like it was a silly question, but in a confidence, anything about trying to demystify what this stuff was doing, mm-hmm. I feel like it would have cut out weeks of time and effort for me. And so it's also important to have a mentor that is someone who has maybe a similar background or someone who you can relate to on other levels besides what your, your shared passions are. Because then you'll have more respect for them. It'll be a better relationship. They can relate better to where you are. And they can even understand certain other things about your context that you may not share with them or you may not feel comfortable sharing with them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Can you share any insight that you've gotten by interacting with other mentors within the Deaf Color group or any shout outs to anybody that in particular that you've been working with within Deaf Color to have some best practices on how to mentor better?
2: So one of our core tenets of dev color is that anything that happens in a squad meeting stays in a squad meeting right. so while i would love to, <laughs> to to share some stuff with you i feel like it would potentially you know yeah so
0: but as far as like in general like in your mentoring practice so that like you've been passionate about this for a long time mm-hmm. what are some things that you've learned over time that has made you a better mentor from other people within, the, like, it doesn't have to be deaf color, just oh, in general in your life.
2: I think in general, um, what I've noticed is that there is a lot of, I guess, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, I'll say imposter syndrome, but it's really self-doubt that you have. And it's really sometimes the lack of self-esteem or the lack of affirmation or the lack of confidence. And so when you're learning something new, you're very uncomfortable while you do it. And you feel like a fish out of water and you feel sometimes you might even doubt if this is something you really want to pursue Mm long-term because it might be really difficult. Right. And I find that as a mentor, oftentimes if someone is not extremely focused and extremely dedicated and extremely passionate about it, a lot of what you have to do is to help them just believe in themselves a little more get themselves out of their own way and allow them to just go forward and just dedicate themselves to it wholly. And so I think sometimes the way that manifests is just like people thinking about giving up or taking other tracks or, you know, trying to figure out ways to, because they may be some of the way towards becoming an engineer, but they're on this, they're they're, they're at this fork in the road and they don't know if it's really worth pursuing. Am I really going to find a job? Mm -hmm. Am I, you know, my friend can't find any internships or they can't find any Mm -hmm. junior level roles. Is this really the thing for me? And I will tell you hands down wholeheartedly that if you're passionate about it, stick with it. Mm -hmm. Trust yourself, spend the time on it, read the books, watch the talks, read code from engineers that are more experienced than you, you know, instead of grabbing any dependency or any library from GitHub, try to understand what it's doing. Try to rewrite the more trivial ones on your own. Learn things from different areas. When I was learning, I would take the same basic JavaScript course from five different places because it helps to overcorrect for the biases that may exist in any one Mm -hmm. particular person's way of teaching it to you. Mm -hmm. And so while 80% of that subject matter might overlap, the Mm -hmm. 20% difference that you get from each of those things Mm -hmm. will help you to have a more holistic understanding of the subject matter. And so even if you don't understand it the first time or the second time, it's about the perseverance, it's about the patience, and it's about the determination to just stick with it. Yeah. And a
1: lot lot of the time uh, when you're, when you are taking coding tutorials, you feel very lost the first time around, mm-hmm. and uh it's very hard to like remember the syntax and you kind of feel dumb and I speak to a lot of people, and I know Arthur and I felt like that when we were learning how to code, but what you should be doing is retaking it multiple times and just know that it's okay that you're not gonna get it the first time around absolutely and I think once people start changing that mindset, then uh, they'll just keep doing it until they master that topic and yep. then they can move on to master the next yep so. At this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. Okay. And we'll ask you questions that are more geared towards strategies, resources, or any advice that you have for folks who are listening and who want to get to where you are today. Okay. Yeah. So this question kind of takes us back to the basics. And you're someone who've started over in multiple careers and multiple uh, parts of your life from scratch. Mm-hmm. So imagine you were moving to a brand new city, okay. you only have $100, okay. and you're starting from scratch again. Mm-hmm.
2: What would you do and how would you spend that $100 to get back on your feed and break into tech? Wow. $100, new city. First thing I would do is try to tap into some sort of community mm-hmm. nearby. I need, I think something that would be important to have in a new place is, a, is just people you can relate to. People who can support you, people who can encourage you, people who can help you out. With $100 in my pocket, even though I'm going to need a place to stay, I would try to find someone who I can befriend, whose couch I can crash on, or mm-hmm. whose spare room that I could use and then just promise them based on my history or my past or whatever, just promise them that I would pay it back and even go so far as to draw up a contract that we can agree to, yeah. that this is what my plan is and this is how I intend to cover you for, for helping me out in this moment. The 3069 you planned. Yes, <laughs> and, it so- and it sounds- actually, That's actually not bad. That actually yeah. sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, I was gonna say, it sounds kind of crazy, but people are way more open and way more kind and way more empathetic than you realize. And so if you are sincere and honest and forthcoming and hardworking, people will open the door for you, right? And mm-hmm. so with that $100, based on what my priorities are, I might invest that in a class, right? Mm-hmm. So certain classes like code school was something I took the JavaScript course on code school, maybe three or four different times, like the same course, I just kept yeah. taking it because I it just didn't click, it didn't click. That's $25. So provided that you have a laptop, internet connectivity, and you're healthy, you can take the twenty five dollars, invest in yourself like I would. And then with the other seventy-five dollars, maybe you could eat or maybe you can double down on that investment, or maybe you can just save it for a rainy day. And so I think, you know, while there's a little bit of luck involved, as is the case with most things, I think you can you can with a little bit of advanced preparation go to a new city with a hundred dollars in your pocket and make it work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I love the emphasis on content and things like that. And speaking about educational content, there's a different type of content that was building you up, which was music. Mm -hmm. Um, And you mentioned one of your favorite artists, which is Eminem, which is also one of my favorite artists. I actually like listening to, uh, what is it, Lose Yourself, whenever Mm -hmm. I'm about to do an interview because it's one shot, one opportunity, even though I think there's lots of opportunities. Um, But can you tell us what your favorite song is by Eminem? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a song that I love of his
2: that's a little lesser known. And it came out, I think, on the 8 Mile album, maybe like an extended edition or something. And it's called Stimulate. And the reason I love the song is because there are so many levels on which I can relate to it, specifically because he talks about being misjudged and being misunderstood, and how at the end of the day, his intentions are pure, and what he's trying to do in terms of being an entertainer and the best rapper and stuff like that. He's just trying to live his best life and do it in the way he knows how to best. And throughout my journey, I've stumbled many times and I've had many, 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 many difficult, difficult situations. And I think. A lot of people that I'd come across in the course of my life had looked at me as someone who was cocky or full of myself or arrogant. And all I really was was just confident, right? I knew who I was. I knew what I wanted. I knew where I wanted to go. And I just didn't want to let anything detract me from that. And so, you know, in the song, he just kind of talks about the human that he is on the inside and just if you took a few moments to talk to him. And to empathize with him and to really get to know him, you would see that you and him are are actually aren't so different. And so for me, that song resonated with me on a lot of different levels, you know, and I think a common thread throughout the course of my life is that I always think about other people and always think about the impact that I have. I always think about being a role model for others. And even in that sort of uh, relationship there, I can relate to Eminem, whereas he never necessarily set out to be a role model, but he's in the spotlight now and then kind of became one. And then, you know, was just trying to do the best that he can with that. So that I highly recommend you listen to the song. It's super deep. Listening to it it's a very real, very raw, very true. And I bet there's something in there that you can relate to too. Yeah. Nice. So the
1: next question, it's a little philosophical, but like having a, like where you are now in life, like where you came from, What would you say, uh, what is learning how to code and like what is being able to code, what does it mean to you in terms of opportunities that you have, like the journey and kind of where
2: you are in life today? I feel like learning how to code and weathering the storm and sticking it out and actually learning how to do it gave me a superpower. Initially, when you're trying to learn your first language, it seems like one of the hardest things you ever set out to accomplish. But once you know it and Mm -hmm. you feel comfortable with it, picking up on additional ones becomes a little easier. There are syntactical differences and the way the code might be compiled might change, but ultimately you're just layering on top of the knowledge and the experience that you already have. And so it becomes easier. And even within a certain language, say JavaScript, learning a new library or ne- learning a new framework, switching from Angular to React to Vue to whatever comes next, it becomes easier and easier and easier because the better you understand it, the faster you can move yeah. and the more empowered you Why are. Why is it a superpower for you? Because I can change the world with code. I can have an idea or take someone else's idea and literally create a physical thing that you can interact with, that you can use, that you can interact with other people on and meet people on and make money on, or and just it unlocks anything you could ever want.
0: Yeah. And you can conjure up things like that to strange. And speaking of languages, you talked about coding languages, but you know, we also talked about a global perspective. Mm -hmm. And before we close, can you send a message to our friends? In Brazil and the people in the eat from Eight Heroes and the Free Birds community, about um, why is it important to understand the tech world, and how can they become a part of this to get superpowers themselves? I think it's important to
2: understand the tech world because this is where the future is headed. And if you're not a part of the solution, you're kind of a part of the problem. If you're not, how does it go? So with Facebook, it's or regarding social media, they say if you're not paying for it, then you are the product. The product. That's right. And so the way you avoid that is by creating the service instead, Mm -hmm. right? Is by understanding how these things work. It's by understanding the impact that they're having on the world. And, you know, it even took me a while to really get into the whole Twitter thing just because I didn't really understand it. But I felt like I was missing out on so much that was happening there because everyone else that I knew was on it incessantly. And so with things like that, where people are congregating and where information is being transferred and where the future is being headed and money is being invested, those are things that you should know about, even if only on a superficial level, just so that you're not left so far behind, that yeah. You, yeah. that by the time you decide to pick it up, it's too late or you have yeah. too much yeah. ground to cover.
1: You don't want to be the consumer that keeps scrolling your feed, spends half an hour every day looking at other people's pictures and actually not getting yourself ahead in life That's right. and some becoming people, a creator. And some or people builder. take
0: that analogy to their stream and call it digital cotton picking, you know? So like, be the creator. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. going to the point about like communication as well and access, like, Even though I have your phone number, I communicate with you mostly through Twitter. That's right. (laughs) Same thing with Nana. Connected with Nana initially through Twitter, Mm -hmm. then Instagram, then email, then phone. Wow. (laughs) So so it's like, it's very interesting, different world. So if you want to be a part of this, how can people reach out to you through whatever form that you like the most?
2: You can find me on Twitter and
0: on Instagram
2: at Rich C. Smith. It's my handle. Look me up. Happy to chat. Happy to help answer any
0: questions and
2: hope to hear from you soon.
1: That's That's awesome, man.
0: Let's break in.
2: Let's
1: do it. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, Encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.